it was a day that was not any different than the days they had become used to. The 12 disciples woke up in the morning and they were there with Jesus and, and um, after breakfast, Jesus said to them, hey, listen, it's time to break camp, we're going to go. And by now they had probably learned that it really is kind of pointless to ask Jesus to explain where are we going, what are we going to do. They knew that there, there were already many times in their experience of following Jesus where um, he would just say, come with me. And sometimes they would walk for two days to get to another place. And then they would meet one person, minister to that person for five minutes, and then leave. And, and they knew that it made no sense to them. They, they were not in charge of how this ministry went. He was a rabbi. They were his followers. Their job was to follow him. And so when he said, come on, let's go, and they started heading down the main road, they just followed him as they always did. I assume that they talked amongst themselves and were enjoying the day and were enjoying the fellowship as they made it down the main road. And, and I don't know if they were even asking one another, where do you think we're going today? What do you think we're going to do today? What do you, what do you think we're going to see the rabbi do today? But they had gotten used to knowing that if you follow Jesus, you're going to see some amazing stuff. And so they were heading down the road and, and not thinking much of it, I assume, when all of a sudden they came to a fork and knowing that um, there was only one way to go really in this fork, they expected to keep going straight and Jesus veered off to the left and they just followed him thinking, what in the world is he doing? Does he know where he's going? I mean, this road only leads to one place. It, it leads to this city that, that Jews just don't even go to. It's a, it's a place that is, that is really set aside for paganism. It's a whole city dedicated to false gods. This place is a place where no good Jewish man would ever get caught dead. It's a place where they had heard about what goes on there, but probably had never seen it, never been there, because it was such a, a concentrated place of paganism. It was such a concentrated place of wickedness that why would any Jew ever be found in that place? And yet there was Jesus just marching confidently down the road to this city that they had heard about, and they did not know why they were going there. When they, when they came around this bend and over this little hill, suddenly the valley opened up to them, and they saw something that they had heard about but never seen before. And it was this mountainside, really a cliff, a giant cliff, and, and, and uh, carved really into the face of the cliff, there were temples, five temples, five different temples, one after another, one, two, three, four, five, all right there. And, and they represented five different religious systems within paganism. And there, was, there were these temples where anything goes. This was the center in that part of the world for pagan worship, and it was also the center in that part of the world for just sensuality. You know, they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. They used to say what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi. It just doesn't fit on the sign very well, but that was the motto. This was the place you went if you wanted to experience any kind of new religious experience. It was the kind of place, it was the place you went if you wanted to experience any sensual or sexual experience. Everything was available to you. And the two were mixed together because in so much of paganism, sexuality and worship are one thing. And so they would have temple prostitutes at these temples. And these guys would make it to these temples and they would they would hire these prostitutes by giving an offering at the temple, and their whole sensual experience was really uh, called worship. 
there was another temple there where it was normal and, and common for them to sacrifice their children to these false gods. This is the kind of place that no Jewish person wanted anything to do with. It was disgusting. It was depraved. It was horrific. It was everything that they were against. And here's Jesus, the rabbi, going there. And they're confused. And they don't understand what he's doing and why he chose Caesarea Philippi for their destination that day. I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament. You say, well, I thought we were in Ephesians. We are. We'll get there. Hang in there. Mark chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. Mark, second book of the New Testament, right after Matthew. Here's what it says. Verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? It's an interesting question. He says, you know, you guys hear the word on the street. I know that people are talking about me. Who do people say that I am? And then look at their response. They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And what you have to understand is that when these people were seeing Jesus, they had no idea what to make of him. They had never in their lifetimes, nor had their parents in their lifetimes, nor had their grandparents, nor their great-grandparents ever even seen a prophet. This is the nation of Israel. The prophets are central to their whole experience. But up until John the Baptist, it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people through a prophet. And now John the Baptist shows up claiming to be a prophet of God. He has power, and when he speaks, it's clear that God has anointed him to speak, and he's moving people. And of course, you know that John has been beheaded by now. They had this idea of Elijah because the Old Testament talks about Elijah coming back from heaven one day. And so they thought, well, maybe this Jesus is Elijah. He certainly seems to be in the spirit of John the Baptist. Maybe he's one of these great Old Testament prophets that we, we heard about and read about. I mean, this would be like, think about this, 400 years. America is like, what, 240 years old, okay? So this would be like somebody telling you about what it was like back in the old days in England 200 years before anybody came to America. And you're going, yeah, I don't know what that's about. That's exactly how it was when they thought of prophets. They had heard about this. They knew that it was part of their religious tradition. But by this point, probably most of them really wondered if God even speaks to his people at all. And along comes John the Baptist, and along comes Jesus, and the people are all abuzz about this. And so they answer him. They say, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And I don't think he even cared about their answer to that question. I am of the opinion that he didn't ask that question because he wanted to know what they answered. I think he just asked that question to set up the next question. Here's the next question, uh, verse 29. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Now, guys, that's the question of life. You could search the world over and you will not find a more important question than that. Because if, in fact, Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then the real question of your life is who do you take him to be? You take him to be a prophet, uh, you know, someone sent from God? Do you take him to be a good teacher? Do you take him to be a false teacher? Do you, do you, do you think of him as a, 
as a religious and social leader? Do you think of him as someone who came and went? Or do you think of him as God the Son in the flesh who paid the price for our sins and gives us eternal life through faith? It's this question, who do you say that I am, is the single most question, uh, the most important question that you could ever, ever grapple with. And so he throws it out to them. Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter answers. Because Peter always answers. And I think one of the reasons is because the other guys are standing back going, you know what, I don't have a clue how to answer this question. I'm still trying to figure this out. All I know is there's something special about him. All I know is that, that he's from God. All I know is that he's empowered by God, but I'm really not so sure. I'm just following him because I know I'm onto something, but I'm not quite sure what I'm onto. And so he says, who do you say that I am? And these guys stand silently. And then Peter, of course, steps forward because Peter always steps forward and usually to put his foot in his mouth. But this time he gets it right. This time he hits a home run with his answer. Look how he answers the question. Um, the second half, verse 29. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Now, Christ, I, I don't know if everybody knows this, in all sincerity, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It, it means Savior. It means Redeemer. It means, uh, it's the same word as the Jewish word Messiah, right? It means the one who came to get us and save us, Right? So they knew there was one who was coming, a Messiah, a Christ, one who was coming to save. And so Peter just went ahead and said, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I think maybe you're the Christ. And he just came right out and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and I'm giving you Mark's version of this, which is a, a very short, condensed version of this. But in the other Gospels, you see this interaction that takes place then between Jesus and Peter. Peter actually says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And I say that you are Peter. He actually changes his name at this moment from Simon to Peter, which means rock. And he talks about how he's going to build his church on Peter's confession that he is the Christ. And there's this, this whole moment in which basically Jesus pats Peter on the back big time and says, you are the man. Not only are you the most dynamic leader in the group, but you now are a great theologian. You got the theological question that nobody else knows and you got it right. Congratulations, Peter. This is the greatest moment in Peter's life. He finally got it right. He doesn't have to get rebuked. He finally figured it out. And Jesus is really congratulating him for it. And then look at verse 30. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Isn't that weird how often Jesus does that? It seems like every time someone goes, oh, you're the son of God. He goes, don't tell anybody. What? Don't you want everybody to know? Isn't that the whole point? No, no, no. Don't tell anybody. And, and that's what he says here. And I always wonder, why is he telling them. And then verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. So he says, you're the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. You're the Redeemer, the Savior, the Deliverer. And they had their own ideas about what that meant, right? They're seeing Rome fall. They're seeing Jesus seated on the throne in Jerusalem. They're seeing the, the, 
temple worship restored to its full glory. They're seeing Israel as a great nation again. That's what they think the Christ is all about. And he begins to say to them, and so let me tell you what's going to happen. It says, and he told them plainly. He said, here's what's going to happen. I am the Christ. So they're going to take me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to try me. Who's they? Oh, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're going to turn me over to the Romans. And you know what the Romans are going to do? They're going to tear me to shreds. And they're going to nail me to a cross. And I am going to die. That is not what they expected. That is the last thing they imagined that he would say. And you know how I know? Keep reading. Uh, Second half, verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Peter was doing so well in this story, wasn't he? You just see Peter. He goes over to Jesus and says, you know what? I'm going to have a word with you over here. Come come over. Listen, um, we just established that you're the Christ. And, you know, you say stuff like this. I know that it's like a metaphor or some sort of mysterious thing. But you're scaring the children, right? Don't talk like that in front of those guys. You you need to stop it with all of this, they're going to kill me talk. Just really, Jesus, knock it off. Now, this is not in my notes. This is free. I don't suggest you ever say that to Jesus. I don't think it's a great idea to just pull him aside, tell him where he's messing up, and tell him to knock it off. And, And you laugh at that? But I've done it. Raise your hand if you have too. Yeah. It's, it's not so uncommon, right? He pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus. All right. If that's what you want to do. And that's where the story begins to get weird. Verse 30. He warned them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them and tells them all of this stuff. Verse 32. He was stating the matter plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Can you say, ouch? Peter goes from being congratulated and told he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I don't even know if they had sliced bread then. He was the predecessor to sliced bread. That's how great he was. And now he's being called Satan right in front of these guys that he wants to lead. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not thinking God's thoughts, but man's. Guys, listen. He went from being told, you're hearing directly from God the Father, and you're channeling his ideas, to you are hearing directly from Satan himself, And you are channeling his ideas. And so what's the big difference here? I mean, Jesus said that he was going to get torn apart. And that's not what the Messiah does. That's not how it works. He knows this. And so he pulls him aside to try to fix him. And he gets called Satan. Why? Because Satan only has one lie. And he dresses it up differently for different occasions. But he tells the same lie over and over and over again. Here's the lie. You don't have to submit to God's plan. Make your own plan. That's the lie he told in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? 
You, you know, God's just trying to hold you down. But if you just break away from him and do it your own way, you can skip all of this stuff and you can have a great life. Be your own God. That's the lie. And it's the same lie he tells again and again. And that's the lie that Peter is swallowing when he pulls Jesus aside and says, don't talk like this. Anything there, when you say you're the Christ, you can't also say that you're going to suffer because Christ and suffer, those don't go together. When you get with Jesus, the suffering is supposed to end, right? And you know what? There's a lot of preachers out there today who are preaching a message that says, listen, come and join the fellowship of people who follow Jesus, and when you do, the suffering will end and the blessings will start rolling. This is the most popular false teaching that is out there today, not just in America, but all over the world. And people swallow this, that, that Jesus wants to make you rich. He's going to take away all your troubles. He's going to fix all of your uh, brokenness. He's going to make your life easy. He is going to pour out all kinds of earthly blessings upon you. All you have to do is accept Jesus, and everything gets better from now on. There are preachers that are preaching this whole, you can have your best life now kind of baloney. That is not guaranteed in Scripture. But there, you want to know what is guaranteed? Look at verse 34. And he summoned the crowd, which to me is fascinating. He had just Peter, and then he had Peter and the disciples, and now he invites the crowd to hear this, which is fascinating to me because what he's about to say is devastating, and it's going to make everybody not want to follow him, and he actually brings the crowd in to hear that. Whereas today, preachers like to make sure that we water it down for the crowd and then we save the tough stuff for just the most initiated, most mature people. He brings the crowd in and here's what he says. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and holy angels. That's not soft-selling the gospel. He says, if anyone, not just there might be some who come after me who experience this. He says, if anyone is going to come after me, you're going to have to do things like deny yourself. You're going to have to do things like take up your cross. This is before Jesus went to the cross, and the cross had all the symbolic meaning that it has to us. You know what the cross meant to them? One thing, death and devastation. You take a cross? Deny myself? If, if I want to, so let me get this straight. If I want to save my life... I have to lose it. What does that even mean? Jesus is throwing out this idea and they're just scratching their head and going, what in the world is he talking about? And you know what? Jesus said stuff like this all the time, didn't he? It's amazing how often he says stuff like this and we go, oh, Jesus, the whole crowd's going to leave if you talk like that. And what did the crowd do? Typically, they left. But there were some who stayed. There were some who were moved by the power of the truth of God's word who became followers of Jesus and their lives were changed. It's strange how, in spite of what Jesus says, we all want to believe that if you come to Jesus, your difficulty will end. We all want to believe 
that Jesus will make your life all that you hoped it would be and give you all the blessings you've been waiting for right away. It's like, you know, a person comes to know Jesus, they're praying, dear Lord, just come into my heart, change my life and be my Lord. I accept your grace and I repent of my sins. Come into my life and I will follow you. Amen. And right when they say amen, their phone buzzes in their pocket and they reach in their pocket and they look at, open the thing and it it says, it's from their bank and it says $10 million was just deposited in your account. It's, it's like you come to church and the reason you're coming is because your life is a shambles, primarily because your marriage is a shambles and you just cannot get along with your husband and it is just too much for you to take and you're sharing that with a friend and she says, listen, come to, come to our church and, and hear about the gospel. And you come and you hear the gospel and you give your life to Jesus that Sunday morning in church and everything has changed. You've never been so full of joy and you go home expecting to find Brad Pitt with a great attitude waiting for you at home. But what do you find? Same knucklehead you left, right? And we go, wait a second. That's not what I thought was going to happen. And so, you know, say what you want about me. I just don't want you to say I didn't tell you. I just don't want you to say that I led you to believe that if you bought this bill of goods, that suddenly all the rainbows were going to follow you around and everything was going to be peachy from this point on. You know what? If you come to Christ with a bad marriage, you probably still have a bad marriage the next day. If you come to Christ with cancer, chances are you're still going to have cancer the next day. Does Jesus heal marriages? Yep. Does he heal cancer? Absolutely. But typically, we suffer. Life is hard often. We live in a fallen world. And following Jesus doesn't make all that go away. And by the way, I think this is probably one of the main reasons that Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone. Because they didn't even understand the real gospel. If they had gone out and started preaching, hey, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah, and talking about life the way they expected it to be from the Messiah, they'd be preaching the wrong message. And so he says, listen, don't tell anyone. There's going to come a day when you're going to tell a lot of people. And by the way, when that day comes, you're going to suffer. Because it'll be hard on you. They didn't understand. They hadn't come that far in their journey yet. They must have been thinking, what in the heck is he talking about? Deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life to find it. How does this make sense? Some kind of mysterious language. What does it all mean? And in that place, with all of those temples and all that the world has to offer in terms of religion, philosophy, and sensuality, as the backdrop for this conversation... He says, who do you say that I am? And then he says, it's going to get harder. It's as if there's this clear picture, a choice to be made. Do you want the life of ease that the world is offering you? Or do you want real life by following the King of Kings, even if it costs you everything? And, And this is one of those times, as far as we know, he took them there just so that would be the backdrop of this conversation. Because it says then that he led them away from there and eventually into Jerusalem where he rode in on a donkey, remember? And they threw the palm branches on the ground and they shouted as he came in. And what did they shout? 
Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us now. Save us now. Make our lives better now. That was the chant as Jesus was riding in that day. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He comes in the name of David the King. He will make our lives better now. And the same crowd just a few days later stood in front of Pilate's palace and chanted another chant. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Why? Because he didn't make their lives better now. This expectation that, that when you get with Jesus, all the suffering goes away and everything gets better, it's a lie. They thought, these people, that it was all about Christ making their lives better. And isn't that why, isn't that why so many of us seek Christ in the first place? We get to a place where we go, I, I need help. My life has fallen apart. I need my life to be better. I am so tired of oppression. I am so tired of suffering. I'm so tired of discouragement. I'm so tired of pain. Lord, make my life better now. Let me ask you a question. Why are you here today? I mean, why throw away a perfectly good, sunny Sunday morning? A beautiful day. I mean, man, would this be a great day to be at the beach. Stay where you're at. Just saying. But you got up this morning and you said, I'm going to go to Grace Fellowship. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to hear the Word of God. Why? Sometimes I think that for many of us, from time to time at least, we sort of have this idea, I'm hurting. I need God's help. Maybe if I give Him an hour on Sunday... He'll give me some help during the week. Make my life better now. If God's so good, why is my life so hard? Where is God when you need Him? Maybe if I give Him some time. Maybe if I give Him some focus. Maybe if I put some money in the plate. Maybe if I really sing loud with my eyes closed. Maybe then He'll make my life better. Well, that was the whole confusion of that conversation. And 30 years later, Paul is writing a letter to the Ephesians and to us. And when he writes this letter, where is he? He's in jail, right? He's writing this letter from jail. I told you we we're going to talk about Ephesians. You were hoping I was going to say, let's pray. Turn to Ephesians <laughs> chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Ephesians 3.1, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of the Gentiles. Let me just stop there. I didn't get very far, did I? Let me just stop there. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. I want you to notice something. We already know that Paul's a prisoner, right? We know he's writing this letter from prison. We know that they know he's a prisoner. But when we think of it, don't we think Paul is a prisoner of Rome? He's in a Roman prison, waiting to be tried by the Roman Caesar, tied up between two Roman soldiers. He's a prisoner of Rome. Or maybe if we think of it more spiritually, we might think Paul is a prisoner for Christ. It's because of his witness that he's a prisoner. But it's very interesting. He does not say, I, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. 
And he does not say, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. He's a prisoner of Christ. Like, Christ is in charge and he's in jail. That's what he calls himself. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. Elsewhere, he calls himself a slave of Christ. That's an even more despicable word. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ. Those are not good terms, right? Prisoner, slave, bondservant, those are not what we aspire to be. We all have in mind a picture of, let's say, slavery, for example, and it's not good. The idea of a, a human being owning another human being as a piece of property, dehumanizing that person, controlling that person, using and abusing that person, everything about slavery makes us sick, I hope. And yet, we're supposed to want to be a slave of Christ. What's that about? It has to do with the connotation in our mind about slavery. Because every example of human slavery we know is about injustice and abuse and domination. Because every slave owner is using another human being, right? But God loves you so much that he sends his only son to die for you. God knows what's best for you, has the power to bring about what's best for you, has a plan for your life, and only wants the opportunity to carry out that plan, which is best for you. That's a whole different way to think about being a slave. You know, the great theologian Bob Dylan once said, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? Maybe the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody, he said. He's right. You are a slave. So don't get all upset when God says, I want you to be my slave, because what he's really saying is, I want to rescue you. What he's really saying is, I want to take you out of bondage into freedom. And so he calls himself a slave of Christ for the Gentiles. So Paul's not just a prisoner for Christ, he's a prisoner of Christ. He belongs completely to Jesus. And he says in the, his letter to the Philippians that that's the source of his contentment. That, that negative circumstances have no power to take away his joy because being a slave of Christ is the only thing that matters to him and nobody can take that away. And so he has contentment. Paul has more joy in prison than most people have in Beverly Hills Mansion. Look at verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by the revelation there was made known to me the mystery, there's a word he's going to use again and again, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. That's what we looked at all in last week's sermon, right? That he broke down the wall, and now as Gentiles, we're a part of the family of God. Verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Why am I in prison? It's the gift of God's grace to be the prisoner of Christ. 
Now, don't get hung up on this word mystery. It's confusing. We hear the word mystery, we think of something that has no explanation or nobody can understand or it's too out there for us to wrap our minds around. But the Greek word here that is translated mystery is a very simple word. It, it simply means something that has been revealed that was previously unknown. So when he talks about a mystery, he's talking about something that was Hidden, the revelation of something that was previously hidden, right? So he's talking about something getting revealed. He's not talking about something that is still secret. He's saying there's something that wasn't known, but now it's known. All of those years when people are trying to fight their way into God's good graces and failing because no human works are enough to please God, the mystery remained. How will this ever happen? And when Christ comes, he reveals the truth. And, and that's what he means by mystery. It's, it's not weird. And so let, let me illustrate this for you. Um, I want you to raise your hand if you know what city I was born in. <laughs> um, ushers, can we have that man removed? Um, here it is, ready? If you're taking notes, you probably write this down. I was born in Stanton, California. Mystery revealed. Now, how many of you know where I was born? Okay, that's a mystery. That's it. That's all it is. Something you didn't know that has now been revealed. It's as simple as that. That's the mystery that he's been entrusted with. And, and what is this mystery? That Christ has come to suffer for us in order to pay the price for our debt. Nobody saw that coming. It was a mystery. And there's another part of this great mystery. Look at verse 7. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me according to the working of his power. There's that word that I love so much that we see again and again in Ephesians, grace. Grace means when you deserve to be punished and instead you get blessed grace. And he's saying this imprisonment, this suffering, this difficulty, and the execution that awaits me is a gift of God's grace. To suffer for Christ's sake is a gift. Did Paul deserve that kind of grace? Do you deserve that kind of grace? That's the mystery of grace. Why would God allow one of his beloved sons, like Paul, this great man of God, to suffer and die the way Paul was going to suffer and die? Why would he allow Jesus to suffer and die on the cross the way he was going to suffer and die? Why would he allow the prophecy of Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16 to come true when he told his followers, listen, you are going to be persecuted and you are going to suffer and you are going to die for my sake? Why would he allow that to be true? Look at verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Why am I suffering? The rulers and the authorities 
are going to hear, even the ones in the heavenly places, about the goodness of God. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember a few weeks ago, we're in Ephesians 2.10. We did the whole thing with the Picassos or the Michelangelos, right? And we talked about being a masterpiece. And we said, you are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, and he has a plan for the rest of your life. Remember that? Remember, I hope that you went out of there just feeling rejuvenated and excited like, wow, I don't have to worry. God's got it. My life is going to be great because he's already planned it for me. Well, I don't mean to rain on your parade, but look what it says in verse 11. This, this suffering was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. He has this plan from the beginning, before the foundation of the world. Guess what it includes? Suffering. Now, it's not all suffering. There's lots of fun, and there's lots of laughter, and there's lots of enjoyment, and there's lots of blessings. And aren't we all more materially blessed than we ever imagined we would deserve to be? And yet, life is still hard. Listen, is your hope really in this life alone? Because if it is, Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. But if we have hoped in the life to come, we can rejoice. Is everything really about the temporary? Are we really still only coming to Jesus when we want to cry out, save me now, make my life better now? Or do we really understand that His grace is poured out and His gospel is made known when we are willing to walk with Him and serve Him in every circumstance, no matter what, by faith. Paul was in a jail cell. Let me ask you this. What's your jail cell like? I talk to a lot of people, and, and I hear stories of hurt and discouragement and um, frustration and seeming inability to get past difficulties. I've talked to so many single people and through tears they say, I just want to be married. I just want to find the right person and I just want to be married and get on with my life and find a godly spouse and follow Jesus together for the rest of my life. And I feel so lonely and I'm so discouraged trying to do the dating scene and I'm just so tired of being single. I just wish I was married. And I, and I encourage that person and pray with them and send them out the door. And 15 minutes later, my next counseling appointment comes in and it's a couple and they sit down and go, we are so sick of being married. <laughs> We've just had it with this. And, and, and you talk to people in, in, in all seriousness who, who are saying, oh, my job, it's just like painful every day that I go there. My coworkers are dastardly, and my boss expects me to work overtime without getting paid, and the atmosphere is just terrible, and I'm telling you, it's just killing me. And you pray for that person, the next person you talk to says, I've been out of work for seven months, I'll take anything. And you realize that no matter where you are, sometimes life's hard. And Jesus said it would be that way. So let me ask you this, what would happen if we all decided that no matter where we are right now, we will make it about the glory of Jesus Christ? What if we all decided, you, you find yourself going to dialysis three times a week, and you're just like, my whole life is sat for me, I can't even have a job, I can't do anything because I'm in kidney dialysis three days a week. What if 
those three days a week, you would spend talking to the nurse and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. And what if God would use you to transform the life of that nurse just because you happen to be in dialysis three times a week? What if your joblessness resulted in an opportunity for you to spend more time in prayer and in the Word than you've ever spent before and more time volunteering and serving other people while you're waiting for God to bring that job? What if you just decided that no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, it will be for the glory of God? You know what Paul did when he was chained up between those two Roman soldiers all the time? He told them about Jesus and revival swept through the whole Praetorian Guard as they came to know Jesus because they were blessed enough to be chained up next to Paul. What if we all took that approach? Listen, if you are a Christian today, you have reason to rejoice. Let me tell you why. Jesus Christ has poured out grace upon you. John says, grace upon grace. The picture I always have is standing underneath Niagara Falls and it just keeps coming. The grace of God, you're just drenched in it. You're just overwhelmed by it. You're just soaked by it. And, and that's true whether or not you're having a hard time right now. That's true whether or not you just got a bad prognosis. It's true whether or not you're going through a divorce. It's true whether or not you're having a hard time paying the bills. I'm telling you, the grace of God doesn't stop. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. If you are a Christian today, you you have reason to rejoice. But let me tell you something that you're going to think is weird. It wouldn't be the first time, right? If you are not a Christian today, you have reason to rejoice. Because somehow, by the amazing grace of God, you have wandered into a place filled with people whose lives are being transformed by Jesus Christ and you're getting to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ that he came to set you free from your sin that you can't set yourself free from and you are hearing this gospel and Jesus is reaching out to you and saying, listen, I have a life in mind for you. Why don't you come and take it by grace? See, his grace, it just comes and comes and comes. We're all on our way to a baptism right now. If I ever stop talking, we'll be finished, and then we'll head out and go to the baptism. And when we get there, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see people whose lives are being transformed because they've given their hearts to Jesus Christ, and we're going to watch them go under the water in this incredible picture, and, and this picture is of death and burial with Christ, the old, the old self dead, and then resurrected to new life. And we're going to get to rejoice with them. And we're going to get to see this incredible picture of what it's like when Jesus actually comes and takes up residence in somebody's life. You will never be the same once Jesus comes. But it doesn't mean the suffering stops. It means contentment is available to you either way. And that's available to any of us who will accept it. Simply because of God's grace. It's not about works. It's not about your merit. It's not about any of that stuff. It's all about grace. Mystery revealed. What are you going to do with that kind of grace?